This year has been one of the toughest years for most people. From the uncertainty and the insecurity we've all faced on some level as a result of the pandemic to losing our loved ones as a direct or indirect result of this deadly virus, we've had to ask ourselves important questions this year. For many people, 2020 has meant change, adopting to the new normal and holding on to the most important things in life. For others, a lot of our issues have been the reality for a while. They have faced a lot of uncertainty, felt insecure in the spaces they've occupied, and have had to constantly fight to be. Today's storyteller is a woman who knows a lot about that life. From dealing with traumatic events in her childhood back in Zimbabwe, to now living as a queer, atheist, African immigrant in the US. I'm Wally Emanuel, and you're welcome to a new episode of In These Moments. After getting Vera's story on the last episode, we spoke about what we were working on going forward, and she said she knows somebody I'll enjoy speaking to for this show. Ruth had been a previous guest on her podcast, and she connected us. A few days later, I spoke with her, and we scheduled a time to record for this podcast. She was welcoming, open, and spoke with honesty about her experiences over the years. Without further ado, let's listen to Ruth's story. My name is Ruth Marimo. I am 40 years old. I currently live in Bellevue, Nebraska, by way of Zimbabwe. I've lived in Nebraska for the past 22 years. I am a business owner. I have a cleaning business. Um, I'm also a published author. I have a memoir. I have uh, a couple of works of fiction. I am a mother of two teenagers, and I fish and camp and garden in my free time. I was born in Murewa, Zimbabwe in 1980. I was actually born to a teenage mother. I was actually surprised because no one knew I was coming. My mother kind of hid the pregnancy. And then, you know, my mother had to go back to school and I was kind of raised by my grandmother for the first four years of my life. Then, you know, my mother actually suffered from what I now know to have been mental illness. She probably was either depressed or bipolar. So when I was five years old, my mother actually took her own life. The first four years of my life, I spent with just my grandmother in her rural home, in her village. And so my memories of that time are so full and so vivid. It's like the stars in the night sky because we're in the village, or the, the fire at night, the walks to get water, the going to plant things in the fields, just like walking barefoot in the red soil. Like I, re I really remember all of that very, very vividly, even though it, it happened at the very beginning of my life. But I think just having my grandmother and myself, like she just kind of devoted her every waking moment to me. I was just like really nurtured in those first four years of my life. And then, of course, the second I moved to the city to live with my mother, my life became chaotic. What I remember is like one second I'm with my grandmother in her rural home, then the next second 
I'm being moved to live with my mother who lived in the city. But at this point, my mother had another little girl. My sister was three years younger than me. Her name was Chido, and that's what I named my daughter because after my mom passed, we were moved to live with one of her sisters. And on our way there, my little sister actually contracted measles and ended up dying shortly after my mother died. So I lost my mother and my sister in the same year. I don't remember anyone actually talking to me when my mother died, but I do remember her funeral. Like, I have very vivid memories of people crying. And then the next thing is we're on a train, my sister is sick, and my sister doesn't come home from the hospital. It's interesting what your brain chooses to remember and what it chooses to forget. I don't have a memory of my sister per se, but I specifically remember when she was sick and how the adults had to hold her down and because what happens with measles is you you have all these sores in your mouth and your throat the adults would get a spoon and wrap it in gauze and then use that remember that purple medicine that they used back in the 80s for everything i forget what the actual medical name for it is but they would swab her throat and mouth out with that and i remember that so vividly because she would fight them off and then she just never came back i don't remember a funeral for my sister even though i remember a funeral for my mom there are all of these like moments that are very vivid in my mind and then so many other things that are so blurred from that time. After losing her mother and sister, Ruth would stay with different family members going forward. Although they were connected by blood, she always felt like an outsider in their homes. It didn't matter what home I was in. In fact, the title of my memoir is Outsider <laughs> because that is what I felt like. I was an outsider. So I was always reminded that like, while sure my school fees is being paid for, I have a roof over my head. I was never treated like my cousins were who belonged in that family. Either I was doing more chores or all the chores where they didn't do anything. There was always something that reminded me almost on a daily basis that I was an outsider. So how I coped, actually, even like with just like the trauma of losing my mother and my sister, what I started to do was like I would be a happy kid when everyone was around. But the second that I was alone, I would just like weep. I would just weep so hard, as hard as I can. That was like a release for me. It wasn't voluntary, though. Like it would just happen. It would just happen that all of a sudden, when I found myself alone, I had to do this deep weeping. That didn't stop until 16 years ago when my daughter was born. And then all of a sudden, those attacks, I don't know, they just disappeared. There was something about having a daughter that stopped whatever that thing was. It's interesting because, of course, I'm an adult now and I have children in my life now as in like nieces and nephews. I cannot fathom how, so one of the things that happened, in fact, I was just talking about this today, was that my birthday was never celebrated. While my cousins had like big parties with clowns and all of <laughs> and my birthday came around and no one said happy birthday. Those cousins I'm speaking about have children now, and I cannot imagine their children's birthdays coming without me acknowledging and recognizing and celebrating their children's birthdays. And yet it was completely normal for my birthdays to not even be acknowledged. My mother had four siblings. 
I lived with each of those siblings at some point, but I lived with my mother's youngest sister the longest, from the time I was 10 years old to the time I was 18. And I left Zimbabwe for, for England when I was 18. So I did a short period with my aunt who lived in Wange, which is where we first went. Then from Wange, I went way across the country to where my other aunt lived, and she lived in Motoko. I was there for a few years, and then when I was 10, I went to visit my aunt who lived in, in the capital city, Harare. She had this big house, and I actually remember saying, okay, I don't want to leave this house. Like, this is where I need to be. Asking her if I could just stay and not go back with my other aunt. Then she kind of like ran around and like got me a place at the school, Blackiston Primary School, which was like a really, really good school. And that's where like, if I sound intelligent, that's where I believe like <laughs> all of that schooling came. And even like my love for writing and literature now, all of that stuff was, you know, going to the school called Blackiston was kind of like a, a new chapter in expanding my mind teachers started to recognize how intelligent I was. I was like the captain of the class. So it was kind of like a new me emerged, very different from, you know, the orphaned one or the, the one that's treated differently at home. At school, you know, teachers don't, they don't judge you. They're just like, you're all students and you're being judged by like your intellect and, and, and stuff like that. So I really kind of really started to blossom at school. When I was 18, I wrote my final A-level, Zimbabwe. Things were starting to go a little south. You know, it wasn't bad yet, but there was just things were starting to go wrong. And people were starting to leave, those that could. At the time, I guess my aunt knew a Zimbabwean doctor who needed help because his wife was pregnant and they were having another baby and all of that stuff. And so... Since I was finishing my A-levels, they were like, well, this might be an opportunity. So I actually went to England initially to be like, I was going to be like this doctor's maid or something. That's how I left Zimbabwe for England when I was 18. And then when I got to England, my aunt who lived there, she came with my aunt to go drop me off at the doctor's house. And they were kind of like talking about how will I get paid and all of that? And I'm 18. I don't know what one should be worth doing that kind of work. None of that, right? I was just plucked out of my environment. And the doctor and his wife were like, oh, we'll pay her £100 a month. This is in 1998. So my aunt who lives in England and my other aunt left me there. But then the next day they came back because my aunt who lived in England was like, that's slavery. You can't leave her there to work for £100 a month. So without my aunt who had lived in England for a while, I probably would have just been stuck in that kind of house. But the irony is that a few weeks after that, after, you know, my aunt took me back and I kind of just started staying with my aunt who lives in England, who wasn't like a close aunt. She's more like a second, third cousin aunt type thing. I got a job like polishing furniture for the store that was closing and I was making a hundred pounds a day. That was kind of like my life in England. And then, of course, like I did the whole care work where you're taking care of old people and all of that. And then an opportunity came up for me to come to the U.S. because once again, my aunt knew someone who lived here in Nebraska. And she's like, yeah, you should just try going to the U.S. I did have a visitor's visa to the U.S. 
when I left Zimbabwe. So I already had that. So that's how I ended up coming to America. And that's a whole other story. Ruth talks about adjusting to life in America and meeting people who helped her through that process. She then went out to meet a man she ended up marrying some years later. The difference was noticeable right when I stepped into an American Airlines flight. American flight attendants and Americans were so much more friendlier and warmer than my entire eight months experience in the UK. They were just greeting you and that's just not how English people are. Unfortunately though, the person, my aunt was like, oh yeah, you you can stay with this person, was just someone who was just a big mess herself. So I got here and I remember first of all trying to just navigate little things like, okay, I need to make a phone call. What is a quarter? All of these little things you have to navigate because you're, you know, I went from using Zimbabwean money to British money. Now I'm using American money. Like literally, like if you've never seen a quarter, (laughs) you literally don't know what a quarter is. So I had to navigate little things like that at the airport. And then like she said she was coming to pick me up. And then four hours later, she hadn't shown up. And then I finally took a taxi to her apartment and Again, you know, people's lives are not what you imagine because you think America and you think, oh my goodness, extravagant. It was just kind of like this dinky little apartment with hardly anything in it. She's struggling herself here. And then the next day she left her baby. I didn't even know she had a baby. Then I had to t- started taking care of her baby. Then luckily she had an older sister who found out that She's got some 19-year-old who just came to live with her. So her sister was instrumental in kind of like running around. And back then, you could just like literally walk into the social security office with a visitor's visa and get a social security card. She took me to the driving license. By the way, I taught myself to drive, literally self-taught, like just got in a car and started driving. Went and got a driver's license, went and got a job. So that's kind of like how I got going once I got here and got on my feet. And of course, none of it was easy. None of it was easy. I think it's sometimes easier to look back because with time, of course, you don't remember how hard things were. But I remember things just being really hard. You know, like I didn't have a car for a long time. My first car that I finally got had no heat. And I don't know if you know anything about Nebraska winters, but they are brutal. So I'd have to like try to drive at night with no heat and I would get home and my fingers would be frozen. I've since had family move here and I try to tell them these stories, but because I was here and kind of helped them along. My stories sound like fiction if I talk about what I went through as an immigrant on my own trying to make it here, the kind of suffering that was there. My theme in my American experience has been the generosity of complete strangers. At work, I immediately made a friend with uh, another girl who was like two years younger. We were both taking the CNA class because that was my first job here, was a certified nursing assistant. And immediately she found out that I didn't have a car. Her parents were like, you have to give Ruth a ride every day. And even when she was off, she would come and give me a ride home. And then her parents, once they knew my story, that I was kind of like alone here, they kind of adopted me. All of a sudden, I'm going to like Thanksgiving and things like that. I'm a very social, very extroverted person. So I've never struggled with like making friends or having lovers. 
so I made a lot of friends and yeah, I think at 19, I had my first boyfriend here. He was white. His name was Luke Brandon. He looked like Patrick Swayze. That's actually who I ended up losing my virginity to, even though people in high school think it was my high school boyfriend, but it wasn't. Then I met my children's father when I was 21 and got married at 23 and then had my daughter at 24, my son at 26. I would go dancing a lot once I turned 21. So I met him at a club and I mean, he's a very good looking person. So he actually lied to me because I was only 21. And he told me he was like 26 or something like that, but he was actually like 29 or 30. He's nine years older than me. So the relationship started off on a lie. You know, he had kids, said he didn't have any kids, all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, that stuff you find out later on when you're already kind of like stuck. (laughs) This was my first time with someone who's abusive. And I literally did not have the... In fact, I actually confused the abuse for love. So, for example, you know, he was very controlling in that, like, he would call me, like, just endlessly. Where are you? Where? And I thought that was, like, that was caring. But no, actually, that's a red flag for a pretty unstable person who's, who's controlling. He would show up at my job unannounced. Well, that's not love. That's stalking. So all of these things that I, I did not know, I did not recognize were even abuse until much later when the abuse had already escalated. Maybe three weeks into dating this guy, that's when like, you know, something in your gut goes, man, this doesn't feel right. We were playing a pickup basketball game with my one cousin because my one cousin had moved here and uh, another guy we worked with and my new boyfriend. I was on a team with my cousin and he was on a team with the other guy. So two and two. My cousin and I won and he flipped out. He used the B word on me out of nowhere, just from losing a basketball game. I have never felt that embarrassed in my life. So I went back to my place and he did this bizarre thing where he came and he just started crying because he was so sorry. That was the first red flag. And then I think shortly after that, he choked me. And it happened at a time when my aunt was coming to visit. This is the aunt who had raised me from the time I was 10 to 18. And it was about keeping up appearances. So like, even though I should have reported this and broke up with this guy, I actually like was like, I made things look okay because my aunt was coming into town and I have to put up this facade. The abuse started happening from the beginning. And even like in my memoir, I write about like, the day we got married, literally, like, I went to the bathroom to cry because something died inside of me that day. Like, I knew that, like, this is not right. But then, you know, I was thinking about maybe I can finally get my paperwork resolved because now I'd overstayed my visitor's visa, right? Why are you getting married to an abusive person? Well, beyond that, there's the issue of, like, my immigration paperwork. I need that resolved. And one of the ways is to get married to someone. So there are all of these layers that kind of like put me in this rather unfortunate situation. And then we ran into a problem because he did not have a birth certificate. Like his mom had him in the late 70s or whatever. Then she married a few times. Then one day she just decided to give all her kids her new husband's name without legally doing it. And then When he turned 16, she just walked to the social security office and said, this is my son, so-and-so, that's how he got a social security number. 
So the name he was using was actually an alias, and there was no birth record with that name. So that was a big problem because his birth certificate and a passport is like one of the proofs of ID that they need to process everything. He knew that we needed his stuff. That's, I think, when he had that kind of control of like, if she ever tried to leave me, I'm going to use this leverage thing. Because once it was about him fixing his birth certificate, it wasn't like there was anything I could do. That this is something he had to do in his own time. It was one of those things where, because one of his brothers had run into the same problem and the process had been this whole big thing. And then it was like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll take care of it next month. Next month turned into six months, turned into a year, turned into six years later in the marriage. Nothing has been processed. Do you think he was delaying it on purpose? I think so. I think that because of his abusive tendencies, and he was someone who was insecure anyways, because I was in nursing school at that time, and he would say things like, one day you're going to leave me for a doctor. The funny thing is my partner now, currently, she's actually a doctor. For most of her life, she had always struggled with understanding her attraction to women. The defining moment came for her while dancing with a woman at a party during her time in nursing school. I actually was aware that I was attracted to girls very early in life. So even when I was little, when I was like five, I was more like, I was just a tomboy. I was never like a feminine, feminine girl. When I was 10, you know, when I moved in with that one aunt who I started living with when I was 10, I had these two neighbors who were sisters. And those were my first sexual experimentations were with these girls, you know, and we're about 10, eight years old or something like that. But I remember from the age of like maybe eight or nine, vividly just dreaming about girls in a in a romantic sense. And I didn't understand it. I didn't live in a society where I saw women be together. And so it was just really, really confusing. But I remember from primary school all the way to high school, there was some girl that I was deeply enamored by. I I didn't understand why, like, it was almost kind of like obsessive. I remember being in in high school and there was the senior girl and like, I would be like, I'll hold your backpack. I'll do like, I, I, I had to be around her. I had, and it wasn't like the usual being, wanting to be around a friend. There was something deeper to it but it's not something I understood and even when I started working you know uh, all of these years there was even women at work they would be in my dreams in a romantic and sexual sense and that was so so confusing to me I didn't understand it how even talking to my ex-husband about it came about was I was in nursing school and there was a woman in my program who I had just noticed like I noticed her red hair, I noticed her... All the ways that you notice someone that you have a crush on. And then we had this, it was an end of year celebration to celebrate being done with exams and stuff. And she was there that night and, you know, we were drinking shots and her and I just like started dancing on the dance floor. And she touched my arm and I felt an electric jolt. Like I had never felt that electric in my entire life it was kind of like earth shattering to me so visceral I remember in that moment going I don't know what this is and my ex-husband was actually with me at this party and he noticed something between the two of us and he actually like walked up and like 
separated us and actually almost started fighting with her. We left the party and he wouldn't let it go. And he kept going, are you attracted to women? Are you attracted to women? And I was just like, and I don't know where I got the strength to say it. And I was just like, I am. That was the night everything changed. And once I had said those words to myself, and I don't know if my mind was just waiting for me to catch up to my body or what, but like something changed so drastically that like from that night on, I could no longer like with my husband, like even if he attempted to even be romantic in any way, I would physically throw up. Like my body had such a visceral allergic reaction to like me pretending even for another second that I was attracted to men. Nothing even happened with me and this woman. There was just a knowing deep inside of me that like, I'm not wired this way and I've been going against the grain. Because even when I had boyfriends in high school, which I had amazing boyfriends, they're still my friends today. To this day, I love doing things that guys love to do. So me and my boyfriends in high school, we had a great time because I was doing all the things that they love to do. But when it came to intimacy, there was something that felt very violating to me about trying to be intimate with men. And I never understood why. It just didn't feel comfortable. It didn't feel right. What would happen would be like, even in my marriage, it would be like, after intimacy, then all of a sudden, there's just a deep sense of violation. This kind of constant reckoning. This doesn't feel like it should. I don't know why. There was just a struggle there. I told my then husband that we had to separate. And that's when, of course, his most vicious and just violent side came out. But I had my first girlfriend, like within three or four months of like me telling him that I wanted to separate. It was with that woman that like she answered every question I ever had about who I am in terms of my sexuality and why everything felt like a violation with men and why I had dreamt of women all my life. Because everything was so, it's like my body already knew what to do. And my body did things. The first time I was intimate with a woman, my body all of a sudden did things that it had never done before. Like, for example, I didn't know that I could just get wet, as in like a faucet running. Things like that. I can't make myself do that. That's a, a very involuntary action. It speaks to a bigger wiring within your body, within your brain. It's not something that you can just choose. It's not something you switch on and you switch off. Of course, I've exclusively been with only women now for going on 13 years. And even when it's been a one-night stand, it has never felt violating. It's never been fraught. So clearly, I was just trying to go against the grain, trying to be who I'm not. And also, I've just been the happiest just in knowing my own body and choosing to be. What I choose is to be with the gender that aligns with me sexually. That's the choice. I'm not making a choice to be gay. Rather, I'm choosing to be intimate and romantic with people that feel. Imagine a straight person being forced into a gay relationship. Mm -hmm. That's what it feels like for us too. Like when you're gay and you're, you're doing it like that, you know, it feels it's, it's a violation. After asking to separate from her husband, he decided to punish her by seeking to have her deported back to Zimbabwe. She ended up spending a month in jail, losing her job, her home, 
and having to fight for custody of her kids when she got out. What happened was, of course, I had overstayed my visitor's visa. He had handed this information into Homeland Security. I was a registered nurse at the time. I had a job at a hospital. I, I had my own home in my name. They usually don't go after people like that. Even later, the head said to me, they don't understand why they pursued this case because I'm not a criminal. Yeah, sure, people overstay, but they usually get someone who's doing a crime. I was not doing, I was a productive member of society. When I was arrested, he actually took my passport and everything to the Homeland Security office. I have no idea when in the marriage he had gotten a hold of my passport because you don't look at your passport every day. So I don't know if he was keeping it somewhere all these years, just waiting, because he literally like personally himself walked in with it. My family had to get an immigration lawyer for me. My bail was set really high. Then it was finally reduced. That's how I got to come out. What we applied for was VAWA, Violence Against Women's Act. And it basically says, you know, if there's evidence that you're abused in your marriage, you should have a right to stay. But that took a couple of three years or so, you know, um, it, it took time. So in the meantime, though, my nursing license was affected, so I couldn't go back to nursing. I lost my home. My home was foreclosed on and I lost my kids. I was fighting for shared custody in court, but because my ex-husband was so mean. And so like when the judges were hearing that he had attempted to have me deported, he had done all of these, he had assaulted me. Literally what the judge said when he awarded me sole custody was, if you're saying that this woman is being sent back to her home country, I want her to take her children with her because those children should never be raised by someone like you. Like that's what the judge said. If he wanted to get back at me, being nice would have been the thing that worked. But because he was so... And even even through the immigration courts, they were so understanding of me because they couldn't understand how someone could be so mean, as mean as he was. So in the end, his meanness kind of like actually made life easier for me because everyone was so empathetic, even in the courts. He ended up drug addicted and going to prison for three years or so. I then just kind of like devoted myself to creating uh, life for my kids that was uh, creating memories and stability. Like I understood that stability was something that they needed. I understood that therapy was something that they needed. My girlfriend at the time really kind of helped me through a lot because she was like, yeah, these kids should be in therapy. So my kids were in therapy for a year the second I got custody of them. And that helped tremendously because even though they were little, like within just those two months of like chaos in their lives, there was so much regression that happened in their lives. If you met them now, they're 16 and 14. Even with their relationship to their father now, they understand that he's someone who's sick, but they don't, they're not resentful. They just, they're just balanced. They're just these really whole, happy uh, human beings. I had to move in with my aunt because my house was foreclosed on. Then ended up moving in with my girlfriend's parents in their basement. Then her and I got our own place. Then luckily there was a Zimbabwean woman who was taking care of this older couple that needed someone in their home at night. They just needed someone in the home in case they didn't want them to get up at night on their own. So that 
paid the bills for a while so I was doing that and then they were kind of getting older one of them passed away then the other one was going to pass away that's when I started my cleaning business and I only started a cleaning business because my first girlfriend and her mother had a cleaning business and sometimes even when I was a nurse I would help them on some days that I was off I was like this is such an easy business to start and do and at the time it really was the easiest business that I could start because I didn't have a work permit at this time there were so many things in limbo and I needed something that could give me money to feed my children so literally I googled how to start a cleaning business on the internet and there was this package on there I think it was like $25 or something but it gave you like an ad that you could put on Craigslist it gave you a list of what you needed to buy just to start it gave you pointers it was really instrumental and literally like I did all of those things and within a couple of weeks I had ads up on Craigslist I had got the stuff that I needed I had an aunt who was around who didn't have a job at the time and literally like once we got that first call we showed up as if we had been doing it for years and <laughs> and that was 10 years ago now I have anywhere between 2 to sometimes 5 people working depending on how busy we are honestly having a cleaning business has been one of the best things that has ever happened to me because being your own boss is such a powerful thing but for me it's been just being able to employ other people other women and then the flexibility there's given me in being like fully present in my children's lives like i've never missed a thing they have at school whether it's like parents need to show up in class for this i've always been there we've been able to go on vacations in my life serendipity has happened through traumatic events but all of those traumatic events have led to something really amazing Ruth Marimo sharing her incredible story there One thing I'm always impressed by with humans is our ability to continuously bounce back. One of the most painful things about her story to me was hearing her speak about being in jail and losing her home. I can't even begin to process the pain she felt going through everything she went through, finally settling down, owning a house, having a good job, and then losing everything. But I'm also inspired by her courage, drive, and hunger to thrive in spite of everything she has been through. For more of my conversation with Ruth about her time in Zimbabwe, her kids, becoming atheist, and a lot more, head out to my Patreon at patreon.com/wale, where you'll also find extra stories from all episodes this season. You can also buy her books, Outsider, Indelicate Things, and Freedom of an Illegal Immigrant. online at your bookstore of choice. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I definitely did. Thanks to Ruth for sharing her story. I hope that did something for somebody. It's a really really important story to tell. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends. Don't forget to share this podcast on your social media platform of choice. You can use the hashtag in these moments or ITM pod to share how you feel about this story, how you feel about this episode and other episodes. Also, don't forget to give this podcast a 5-star rating on Apple Podcast. This helps more people come across this podcast and um helps the story spread a lot more. 
it's always great to see people listening from all over the world. I've seen some countries pop up and the, the reception is, it's, it's incredible to say the least. But um, thanks for listening to this episode. Take care of yourself. Keep washing your hands. Keep using your masks and stay safe. Bye.